You're listening to Monocle on Sunday, first broadcast on the 17th of October 2021 on Monocle 24. Good morning from Zurich. You're listening to Monocle on Sunday with me, Tyler Brule. Coming up on today's programme from Seyfeld, my guests, Emily Isohawa and Benno Zog, will share their views on the weekend's biggest stories. Benno is right here. What has caught your eye this morning? And good morning, by the way. Good morning, Tyler. An interesting story in the Zeit about the future of Kabul University. Well, you can imagine it's a bit bleak. A university that has at times in history brought all ethnicities of Afghanistan together and now with Taliban delegates to the university is trying to separate women and men as strictly as possible with all kinds of bizarre rules. It's It would be... It would be uh, it's completely surreal, actually, how, how things are developing there. We'll uh, look at er- enrolment numbers in a moment. We'll also check in on what's happening in Japan. Hello, I'm Fiona Wilson, Monocle's Tokyo Bureau Chief. I'll be talking about the upcoming general election and how COVID numbers are dropping in Japan. Fiona's probably going to be looking for some lozenges as well. Plus, we'll discuss the state of the print industry with Jeremy Leslie, founder of Mag Culture. And Monocle's head of radio, Tom Edwards, joins me to celebrate 10 years of Monocle 24. It's the 17th of October 2021, live from Zurich. This is Monocle on Sunday. Live from Zurich, this is Monocle on Sunday with Tyler Brulé. And good morning. Autumn is officially here in Zurich. The clouds, the mist has set in over the lake this morning. And you know, yes, uh, it, we can't be very far from clocks changing and, and everything else. Uh, I'm very happy to say uh, Emily Isao is here. Also, Benno Zog. Uh, good morning, gentlemen. Very, very uh, nice to see you. Benno, it's been a while. And we found out this is not maybe in the spirit of 10 years of Monocle 24, but it's the first time that we've had both of you around the table. Of course, both of you are at Eteha, sort of similar realms in terms of your areas of expertise, but um, I was sort of wondering if this has been deliberate booking on the part of our team <laughs> that we don't have some kind of punch up or roll around uh, across the table. But anyway, good morning to both of you. Good morning. And um, it's a real pleasure to be across the table from Benno. Well, that, that would make sense <laughs> that you would say that because, of course, you're the coordinator for peace mediation um, at Eteha. But Benno, how do you feel about uh, seeing Emily here as well? Well, it's a great pleasure. We're actually remote colleagues, so it's great, but... Our listeners can't really see the setting here. It looks a bit confrontational. We're facing each other. Yeah, you've got about a meter and a half of, of space across from you. A meter uh, and a half of space. It's so very important well, these yeah, days. Well, yeah, You're really more. the mediator here, Tyler, in between the two of us. So. I am. I am. So anyway, very, very nice uh, to have uh, both of you uh, here. Maybe just uh, we'll start a quick scan of the papers. Tom Edwards uh, is is also over in London. We'll go to him in a moment. But uh, let's not do Taliban yet. Let's and 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 universities in Kabul. Let's let's ease the listeners in. What else has caught your uh, your eye this morning, Benno? Well, I caught a bit of a theme across the week and obviously M24 has covered it as well. Everyone talks about energy all of a sudden, of these ancient themes of 
possible power outages happening in Europe, happening across the world, and obviously in Afghanistan, that's a daily business anyway. So even the NZZ am Sonntag, um, with its co- uh, main story today, entitles that Switzerland may be short of energy very soon and that the Swiss government is sending out letters to, they say, 30,000 companies that, in the case of power shortages, they may may have to cut production and energy consumption by 30%. It reads so surreal, but obviously across Europe this is the theme with energy prices soaring and um, all kinds of nuclear power plants being, being switched off. At the same time, renewables aren't really picking up. So I guess this concerns all of us and makes us think about the very fundamentals of our daily lives because we may we may love all our uh, electronic gadgets, but the very fact that they are powered with electricity is really not on our mind every so often. So it's interesting if stories like this sadly make you think about the very basics of our lives. I'm sorry, and also how much does logistics play into this as well? Because of course, uh, we know that we have trucking issues, not just in the UK, but indeed all all over uh, Europe as well, and all of these bottlenecks. So does this also play into it that also oil delivery, of course, getting petrol to to stations, uh, not just in Bristol, but uh, of course, other parts of Europe is also an issue. Absolutely. So it creates this image of you may not have enough electricity to to light your Christmas tree and you may not have the actual technical gadgets arriving from Asia to be underneath the Christmas tree. But obviously that's a bit of a bleak image. I don't think we'll get there. But yes, so it's supply chains all over of goods, of um, even consumer goods and food, um, which is very basic. Uh, I read this week that now there's even container ships being rerouted um, from UK ports, for example, to the continent, continental Europe, because there's the shortage of lorry drivers that could actually spread all these goods. So it's it's kind of all over and I guess it reminds me of a story earlier earlier this year of this container ship that was stuck in the Suez Canal. I think that was kind of the first sign of yes. how disruptive supply chains are, apart from the whole pandemic story. It's in a way fascinating from many points of view, but also a bit concerning, of course. We'll be asking Emma Nelson a bit later how she's getting on with her lorry driving uh, license, <laughs> a theme that we had a few weeks ago. Uh, let's not do any funny Finland stories just yet. We want to keep the audience and listeners in suspense. Uh, but uh, what have you got for us, uh, Emily? Quite a few interesting stories. And I, I just on the University of Kabul, when we get to it, I, I should note, I was le- reading the equality monitoring plan of ETH Zurich this morning. So I have the statistics on ETH in terms of gender um, representation. But uh, why don't we start in Germany uh, via Finland? So I was reading Helsinki and Sanomat this morning and they had a rather nice opinion piece on, on the German uh, coalition negotiations. So the traffic light coalition um, that's forthcoming, uh, looks like, um, in Germany. And from a negotiation theory perspective, they pointed to three rather optimistic signs. Again, not to paint too rosy of a picture of what's going on in Berlin, but three things that they thought went well um, thus far. So one is that there's a common vision that they started with. So of course, once you get to the nitty gritty, the devil really is in the details when you negotiate. So having this broad vision of a 12-page exploratory paper is the right way to start. And secondly, during these exploratory talks, there were no major leaks, so which is a really uh, a serious or a test of seriousness on the part of um, the three 
three political parties. But then perhaps most importantly, and this is what the Helsingin Sanomat opinion piece highlighted, was um, the compromises that were already made at this stage. So there were a lot of campaign promises of no uh, tax hikes, um, not touching um, the debt ceiling or policy in Germany. And the fact that they, in fact, um, went away from those campaign promises shows that they're working at the level of interest. So what do the parties really want to change in Germany, in German society, and moving away what we call in negotiation theory, the position. So this is what I want tomorrow and rather really working more at the interest level. So again, not too uh, rosy of a picture, but I think there's some optimism um, allowed in Germany. And just before we head over uh, to London to check in with, with Tom, maybe Benno, from your point of view, this, you know, the, the coalition building uh, process uh, can be a, a, a tiresome uh, one as, as onlookers, uh, but also very, very necessary uh, to, of course, uh, see who's going to be installed and what the policies will be out of, of Berlin. So on, on the topic of, of Rosie, just when you look at leadership um, and not just economic leadership, but also moral leadership uh, within a German context, within a European context, is Germany up for the fight? Well, that's an interesting question. One one can obviously look at uh, the actual campaign ahead of the elections, whether that's an indication of where Germany is heading, because we don't have much insight into how these coalition treaties are now negotiated in detail, because there are no leaks, sadly for us, sadly for journalists, but probably good for the political process. But... The campaign was actually very, very Germany-focused, for example. Nobody talked about the EU, nobody talked about Germany's role in Europe, let alone globally, Mm. which is a bit worrying because all kinds of nations are looking to Berlin for the kind of leadership that Angela Merkel has provided at times. But now looking back more critically on her very long um, tenure, she may have been more reacting than acting on, on many issues and seemed fairly uneasy with this leadership role that others pushed Germany into. So one wonders if from whatever coalition traffic light or whatever it may end up being, it looks likely we can have um, this leadership role. If anything, it will take the coalition a very long time to find itself to talk about social and welfare issues, which are very, were very much at the center of, of the campaign and maybe takes a year or two for them to actually figure out a stronger position on European affairs. And maybe that's too late because developments are quick. Afghanistan was just one example of it. Um, So it creates a bit of a bleak picture. But since we're still in negotiations, we try to be optimistic. And if negotiation theory actually makes us optimistic, let's hope practice does too. Mm. Let's uh, cross over to London now. Our head of radio, Tom Edwards, uh, is there. Good morning, Tom. Good morning, Tyler. Good morning, Emily and Benno. Uh, Lovely to hear from you. And uh, yeah, it was interesting hearing there a little bit about uh, what's uh, sort of dominating the the German news media. I've actually got a German story to kick off with, Tyler, I thought. If if it's not too early to talk a bit of uh, industrial relations in the Dutch region. No, go, go for it. (laughs) <laughs> so a uh, really interesting piece actually in the Financial Times about Tesla um, and their German ambitions to build a, a gigafactory. Uh, listeners will recall that they uh, created one in record time uh, in China in I think only in less than 200 days. Uh, but Elon Musk, Tyler, has run into some problems, uh, perhaps not for the first time. And a lot of them are you know, the fact that the, the, the Germany has this very uh, entrenched traditional co-determination system where, you know, workers are represented in boardrooms. They have this very rich history of training up people, especially in big automotive. Uh, and it seems that he might have bitten off more than he can chew. And the FT makes this point that it, it's a lot easier to talk a good game. But if you're trying to revolutionize something like that 
automotive landscape in Germany, it's actually rather harder to do uh, than it is to, to talk about. So it, he, he arrived at sort of great triumphalism, not, I should say, in a Zeppelin, sadly, <laughs> to pick up on an earlier thing. Um, but yeah, just really interesting. This is like, you know, the, the old world and the new kind of butting into each other, which I think is quite an interesting dynamic. Well, also, it, it, of course, in, in well, yeah, the backyard, uh, Wolfsburg, not very far away, Ingolstadt, not far away, I mean, Stuttgart, a little bit further away. Uh, but uh, you, you have to think as well that um, is everyone going to make it that easy for him, despite the fact that, of course, you know, when you look at a Tesla, there are a lot of German parts in that vehicle as well. And actually, as the NZ Am Sonntag is also happy to point out this morning, a lot of Swiss parts as well. Who knew? But anyway, uh, Tom, any, if we looked at the UK uh, papers, aside from the Financial Times, uh, I, I would imagine that there is probably one, one main story which is dominating the papers this morning. Yeah, Tyler, you're right. Look, it's it's this awful story. Uh, Sir David Amos, the um, Tory MP, a veteran, he's been in Parliament since the early 1980s, um, murdered at a, a constituency clinic. And I think around the world, people are aware that, you know, one of the amazing things about uh, our UK Parliament, about the Westminster setup, it has a lot of problems. One of the great things is it's very immediate and direct accountability. Uh, MPs will meet constituents. It used to be completely open. It was just a drop-in session and you could come and rage about your party wall agreement or whatever it was. In recent times, it's a bit more structured. You have to book in to see them, but it's still very, very open. You can get face-to-face -face time with your local constituency MP. Uh, David Amos was at such a meeting at the end of last week uh, and was attacked by uh, what we now know to be this 25-year-old uh, uh, Briton, Ali Harby Ali. And some really astonishing revelations, Tyler, in the newspapers today, The Telegraph, uh, reports about how this suspect was flagged to counter extremism officers for, for de-radicalisation earlier. The Sunday Times today, uh, which, I, you know, is obviously been doing some amazing, uh, well, it's continued its rich history of scoops. They They spoke to the father of this suspect, Tyler, who was a former high-ranking Somali government advisor. He was a special advisor to the former prime minister of Somalia. He still lives in London. Um, and they asked him about his son. He's confirmed his son is held and counter-terror officers, all the papers are reporting, have now got an extended period of time to to question him. And I think what all the papers, Tyler, pick up on, not just his questions, obviously, about the background and these checks and the efficacy of these de-radicalisation me measures, they're asking a more broad question, which is about how safe are our politicians, especially in these accountable moments? And is this a consequence of a more polarised politics that we just need to live with? And I think one narrative which we'll see more of, not just in the papers today, but throughout the week, and indeed as people discuss what this means, do we, do we, do we risk losing some of that openness, that accountability? And I think that would be, be very tragic. We've spoken, Tyler, so often about the importance of not being too reactionary and indeed of trying to restate our democratic values in the face of these terrible provocations. Um, but a hugely uh, complicated question. Um, it involves, obviously, money, time, the allocation of resources, and all the papers are trying to pick their way through what the potential fallout of this tragic killing of Sir David Amos might be. Tom, let me just pick up on on maybe two themes here. Of course, one is is this overarching issue of how accessible our politicians will be uh, moving forward, and and of course we can look across, yeah, the European landscape and many other places around the world where you don't see a heavy-handed approach with you know lots of chase Range Rovers and uh, and lots of cops around, uh, and uh, you know and yeah, you can look here in, in Switzerland, you you see. 
federal counselors riding the trams. Maybe there are police in the background. You certainly don't see them uh, if if they are there. But are, I guess there's this, maybe in parallel to all of this, we have this attack in, in Kongsberg um, this week uh, as well. Question marks in terms of motivation uh, around that in Norway too. But there's two things here. You know, one is the, we've got this question about response times in Norway. A lot of people asking, you know, why on earth did it take almost 40 minutes uh, to have a, a really a proper response to this attack? And and then in the UK, here you're saying someone is, was already on the watch list yet again, um, and it seems that authorities were asleep at the wheel, or they simply didn't have the resources, of course, to to go and track this uh, individual. So how much does you know how much does this also ratchet up the rhetoric, you know, and and both positive and and maybe more hysterical. Yeah, I mean, I think what's been encouraging is that somebody like uh, Priti Patel, the Home Secretary, who's maybe not the sharpest political tool in the box. Am I allowed to say, am I allowed to say that on your program, Tyler? Yeah, but, you yeah, know, yeah it's, she, it's fine because you obviously the channel, so it's all right. <laughs> she's prone to uh, melodrama. She's prone to be very reactive in her pronouncements. And actually, I not not impressed, but I was reassured at least that in certainly her uh, statements from the last couple of days that are being reported and followed up today in the in the British press, you know. She said, we must not uh, falter, we mustn't change from these very fundamental commitments about accessibility. I think where you're right, and I think where there's some tougher questions to answer for the security services, look, if you, you know, enter people into a de-radicalisation programme that's partly optional, most people who, who, who pass through that door don't go on to offend. So on the basis of the, you know, the statistics, it's largely a successful programme. There will always be outliers. I think the worry would be, if somebody has been red flagged, even if their you know danger status has been downgraded subsequently, should they be allowed to access a constituency MP face to face, unsupervised, in a you know this was in like a Methodist church hall in in, in South End, and I think that is where you know it, it, there are going to be some some very very tough uh, questions to answer. I, I think what we need to come back to always though is that look. So David Amos was, you know, not a particularly divisive character, but he was a traditional socially conservative Tory MP. He wasn't everybody's cup of tea, but whatever your stripes, this was a guy who was a brilliant constituency servant. You know, even his local opposition have doubled down to say, you know, to to, to give these testimonials about how much he fought for his community. And we just cannot risk losing this very profound fundamental connection with our local representatives because of these continual acts of violence or or provocation. So I hope that just as the Joe Cox uh, murder five years ago, which Amos had written so eloquently about, you know, that didn't uh, prompt anyone to to falter or lose sight of the fundamentals. It prompted us to review. We now spend, uh, we spent only about 200,000 on uh, constituency MPs protection before we now spend more like five million pounds, which is probably more in line with, with the threats of the day. Um, but aside from the security side, I hope it doesn't change anything from that important democratic uh, point of view. Tom, just quickly, um, when, when we, of course, uh, looking at uh, the screens uh, here in the studio, um, and and uh, you see obviously a lot of a lot of uh, talking heads. Obviously, all of the the camera positions are uh, you know down at the, at the constituency today. Are we seeing, uh, of course, unity across uh, the Commons uh, as as well? It, it's it seems like that. 
Yeah, I think so. I mean, look, there's a, there's a good sort of heritage in this country that people come together, even if they're, you know, from really opposing camps. I mentioned that polarised politics earlier. One of, or perhaps the only good thing, and I use the phrase uh, under advisement, that comes out of these things is that it reminds people what they're in the game of politics for. So um, you've had uh, Keir Starmer being, uh, you know, he, he's pretty kind of statesman-like. He's maybe too... Um, sort of uh, e equitable for some on, on the left in his general pronouncements. But I think in these moments, he he, he comes across pretty well. And yeah, as I said, from the local uh, party scene to the national level and even internationally, because obviously this is a story that provokes a response from all around the world. I think we do see, I don't know, a, a reassuringly almost old fashioned tone in terms of mm. the pronouncements that people are making. And obviously we shouldn't um, prejudge these, these, this suspect, as I mentioned, Ali Harbi Ali of Somali origin will now be, has been remanded and he, for at least another five days, I think under counter-terrorism provisos, they have much longer to, to question him. So we also shouldn't second guess uh, what the learnings of the ongoing criminal investigation might be. Mm. Benno, just uh, there have been some judicial changes and proposals, of course, here in Switzerland, which are very much focused on preemptive measures uh, as well. Where do things stand? And, and of course, there are always going to be lone wolves, etc. But is that part of what the, these preemptive measures were about? Um, here in Switzerland. Mm -hmm. That was certainly the framing. We had a popular vote earlier this year about a new uh, police measure law that passed somewhat narrowly, but it did pass. So it's in, in the process of being um, politically designed and implemented. And exactly the preemptive measures were, were the main, main target. That's how it was framed ahead of the vote. It, it enlarges potential measures for police to for surveillance of potential suspects, but also of house arrest and so on. And the focus is really on preempting. So these are people who have not committed any crime whatsoever, but they are on some kind of watch list and are considered a potential threat to society. Um, I found the, the debate around it and now also how the topic is approached, particularly in a country like Switzerland, which is considered very safe and hasn't really seen much of these attacks, let alone um, of Islamic terrorism, which is usually the, the main element of the discourse. There's a few problematic elements, of course. I mean, Tom mentioned it as well. Programs in place to de-radicalize and so on have a pretty good track record, but there are outliers that may uh, fall through the cracks that may happen. It only takes one of them and nine, 99 others that are prevented to make everyone question the system. And we mustn't forget, it's always a trade-off of liberties and safety and security when it comes to that and for all. So this illusion of creating some kind of perfect security is exactly that, an illusion. So it's a bit dangerous and finding this, this sweet spot, this, this balance between um, actually tighter measures and surveillance and so on, but still keeping people's freedom and not singling out minorities and so on is really tough. And it's really, it's a fundamental debate in societies that we need to have and largely about security in the first place. Um, how much security can we actually achieve? How much prevention of a single incident is possible? As tragic as all these events are, we just should stay, have a sober look at these issues and look at research as well. How are programs working? What's their success rate? What's the how much investment is there in terms and how does that compare to return? Because with an additional one million policemen, you could probably prevent another attack or mm. two. But is it worth it? That's always the tricky one. Uh, Tom, uh, Ben, I just mentioned uh, the importance of discourse and debate within all of this. And this was very much a theme 
on uh, Thursday evening, uh, well, Thursday afternoon in London, I should say, uh, at our media summit, which is also uh, an event to mark 10 years of this uh, very uh, radio uh, outlet uh, that we're speaking across um, at, at the moment. Um, may- maybe some standout elements uh, for you. Not, And I know it's a, it's a lot to get through. And we should warn our listeners, very not that Tom is going to swear or anything. Uh, we'll probably be a little <laughs> bit late coming to the news at the bottom of the hour because there's a lot to get in. But Tom, maybe, uh, well, you, you can either start 10, you know, uh, you can start uh, 10 years ago or you can maybe just rewind to Thursday if you want. Well, yeah, weirdly, I think rewinding just to Thursday is instructive because we decided that in lieu of just doing, you know, a, a knees up, always call for a good knees up, Tyler. I know you subscribe to that <laughs> to that viewpoint very, very strictly as well. Um, why not uh, shine a bit of a lens, not just on you know, Monocle 24's 10 years on air, but on, you know, the principles that govern not just its origin story back in, in, in late 2011, but have continued to inform its function from day to day and week to week. And what was great about Thursday was we brought together friends, old and new. Um, and so that was fun enough. But we we got into the heart of some of these really important discussions and they speak to issues that Benno's sort of alluded to there about fundamental freedoms, uh, their themes. We talked about, again, Tyler, last month in Athens about the freedom of press and the right of people to articulate maybe bad ideas. Um, And what was amazing on Thursday was to hear from somebody like Clarissa Ward, you know, CNN's uh, chief international correspondent. Um, And you understand the power of somebody who is a proper journalist, who's not feared their editor's red pen, who's been out in the world and who is really engaged with the power of storytelling and on bringing truth to people. Um, Lots of interesting reflections from Clarissa and from others about, you know, the nature of truth, the nature of journalistic objectivity. Now, we would never have made Monocle 24 the success it is if we had hidden away, if we hadn't editorialised, if we were scared of a robust opinion. But at the same time, we always wear, hopefully lightly, our responsibility to convey often, you know, challenging ideas to people just with a bit of proper traditional journalistic rigour. And I mean, so much of the tone of M24 over its decade, its first decade on air, Tyler, I think has been informed by, you know, the principles that you imbued the magazine with now nearly 15 years ago, right? Yeah, which which is amazing, which will be, of course, uh, another uh, very large uh, knees up as well, probably come February, Tom. Uh, so you're gonna have to limber up. I know that you have to run uh, as well, because uh, I don't know if you're sort of a, a deputy football coach or something, but I think there's, there's, uh, there's a kid or kids uh, who have to be taken to the football pitch. Is that true? <laughs> Tyler, I'm afraid it's true. There's multiples. Some are mine, some are others. But yeah, they need me with my with my whistle and my <laughs> my little and that, my football, <laughs> my my high vis gelée. So, um, but good. yeah, but Tyler, I just I was gonna I was gonna say just briefly though. Um, obviously, listeners can stay tuned. Actually, even after your show wraps today, we've got a mm. lovely little doc, a bit more from you and Andrew and some other contribs um, about you know the origin story and how we've got where we are. Beautifully put together um, by our senior producer Holly Holly Fisher. Um, so that's coming up later and actually uh, Holly, Marcus, Emma in London we've got lots of other little treats uh, popping up all through today because today is actually literally 10 years to the day the 17th Tyler so even after our big party and our blowout that left me feeling and frankly looking myself like a Zeppelin on Thursday night uh, lots more to enjoy uh, during the rest of the day on Monocle 24 as I always say Tyler don't touch the dial
Don't. Do not. Tom, uh, good luck with uh, the football this afternoon. Uh, it's just uh, coming up to uh, 10.30 and almost 30 seconds here in Zurich. Uh, Emma Nelson is here with the news 30 seconds late. Thank you very much indeed, Tyler. Emmanuel Macron has become the first French president to recognise that crimes were committed when French police brutally dispersed Algerian protesters in Paris 60 years ago at the cost of dozens of lives. One of the closest states of the Venezuelan president, Nicolas Maduro, has been ex- extradited from Cap Verde to the US to face money laundering charges. Syria has accused Israel of assassinating a prominent figure on the Syrian side of the border in the Golan Heights. And a lorry driver in California claims to have solved the problem of comfort for long-distance HGV drivers. For $26,000, you can buy a part lorry, part motorhome, as well as having a full trailer attached as a space with a kitchen equipped with an oven, a bathroom and sleeping area. The seller says it's perfect for spending long periods on the road, but admits the design is not the most stylish. Back to you, Tyler in Zurich. Emma, we've always talked about a mobile studio for you. And, of course, you could haul vegetables, goats, whatever else is required, fuel. (laughs) Everything that I need to basically steal from elsewhere so that the United Kingdom can keep running. Listen, I've been looking up what what we need to do to get me on the road. So... um, do you want me to be basically category C, C plus E, C1 or C1E plus E or be able to drive a horse box? These are the categories which I need. These are the exams I need to take in order to be a fully fledged monocle 24 lorry driver. Well, um, I want you the C plus E plus E plus. I want you also to be able to have the horse box on the back as well, because if it all, <laughs> if it all literally goes to shit, then you can sort of gallop away. I warn you, that has highest salary written next oh, to it. Well. So, so you may well be brain- I'll inform the finance. <laughs> Rowing back a bit on that one, but it does mean I can drive a massive lorry, which would be great. And we're going to be chatting uh, to to Jeremy Leslie just uh, in in a moment. And there will probably be some reflections from our media summit there. But um, while I have you uh, across uh, the line here, uh, yeah, Mm. whether whether we look back 10 years or or we look back over just the past few weeks, uh, but uh, maybe uh, one one thought of reflection on uh, on a decade of uh, this service. It's unbelievable to think that 10 years ago today we were sitting in a room, in the very room that I'm sitting in now, um, just embarking upon an adventure. And it did feel like an adventure at the time that I don't think any of us really knew exactly where this thing was heading. But I can only remember this unbelievable commitment to get stuff done. And a lot of us were learning what we were doing on the job. A lot of us were coming from different parts of the world and were just stumbling across the threshold. Um, but I've never worked in a place where people think, don't, where people have a more can-do attitude. It was one of those things that we knew exactly what this stood for. I remember spending eight hours with you in a room, in a studio. I'd never met you before. I just wandered around for next door, from next door, and I knew about you, but I didn't. I didn't know you that well. And after and after eight hours, we had a we we sort of practiced how to make radio. I think you and I pretended that there'd been a plane crash, and we had to get Marcus Hippie on the line, who had to give us a live from the scene update. So it was one of those things where you just went at it again and again and again. And it's one of those things that's endured for, for so long um, that there's a there's a commitment to getting things right. And also, if there's a challenge, oh, come on, let's have a go. We'll make it happen. Absolutely. And, and never <laughs> and never before on that particular Sunday had uh, so many non-smokers uh, con- converted to a pack of fags. Uh, Emma will catch up with you probably at the, at the very uh, end of the programme. We're going to stay in London uh, right now because uh, we're checking with the... Uh, uh, Jeremy Leslie. And uh, if you're not familiar uh, with uh, Jeremy, he runs one of the really the finer, uh, finer uh, magazine shops, uh, I would say. If not in Europe, uh, anywhere uh, in the world, uh, mag culture has also become really
really something of, of a brand. Uh, and I don't want to speak in terms of platforms, uh, but in many ways, that's what's been created, a dialogue about just why we love print so much. And Jeremy's heading to Zurich shortly. We didn't have him in the studio right away, but he's, get, he's about to get on the plane uh, because he's coming to speak at uh, DistroPress, which kicks off here uh, tomorrow. Good morning, Jeremy. Good morning, Tyler. Pleasure to be with you, be with you uh, this morning. Well, it was very good seeing you also on uh, on Thursday uh, as well. Jeremy, just it would be great to to maybe hear, and, and of course I, I wrote about this in my column today, about where, where we are when we look at the state of print, because so many people are, are waking up around the world or will be waking up around the world. They'll be tuning into a program like this. They'll maybe be reaching for a screen or they'll be reaching uh, for to catch up on a stack of titles that they missed across last week or they're going to their favorite weekend uh, news newspaper mm-hmm. but as you sort of look back across this year we're in you know we're, we're in q4 um all, already what's what's jeremy leslie's sort of yeah maybe uh, just assessment of where we are with the with the magazine industry well uh, obviously in in every sense and every endeavor it's been a really tough 18 months 24 months uh with the pandemic as context but what i see i mean you know, the, 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 there's a there's a spectrum here from the from the really big magazines and brands who are, who are clearly they've been struggling because of the the travel outlets and traditional outlets for for um, for, for their uh, publications just haven't been opened. But in the independent scene, uh, I think it's healthier than ever, and I think there's great promise there in terms of what the, the future holds. Uh, both on both sides of the equation, I think um, a lot of people have taken the opportunity of the lockdown to consider that project they wanted to do and, and the output of that has been a, a, a whole kind of uh, uh, panoply of, of new publications um, some very experimental and not with kind of great business intent behind them but nonetheless fascinating as pieces uh, on the one side and on the other side I think people are a little tired of their screens we all have to use them we're, we're, we're using even though we're dealing with audio here we're using zoom to communicate uh absolutely that's always going to be there but i think people want a little uh, a lot of people want to find some time away from the screen and the print magazine is the ideal vehicle for that jeremy you referenced uh, some of the bigger players that have had a, had a tough time and does it puzzle you or or maybe you're not surprised uh, that of course some of these these massive players and some of them are, are are regional you could be talking about a big belgian group or a big scandinavian group some of them are properly global but they're really they're caught in a bit of a crisis many of them they're trying to to unpick things many of them still have the resources probably to still figure it out but yet we see them falling for the same old tricks that we even saw at the dawn of digital reducing paper quality uh of course reducing frequency and 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 really at the core of this spending less on journalism uh and yeah. what's what's your read on that because as you said then you've got a lot of independence they only want to celebrate on great paper they only want to commission the best photographers they want to go longer haul when it comes to commissioning great writers uh, and then you've got and and as we know many of them are not that well financed but they can still do it they can still do it and, and uh, I mean we, we did a little bit of research amongst a, a group of the independents um, uh, 500 of the titles uh, that we sell and found a very positive response in terms of uh, the way that you know their, their income is is, uh, is is continuing to grow um, so I mean I, so again I mean I'm very op- uh, optimistic on that front but going back to the, to the bigger players I do think you know this has been a long-term problem. 
and and not just in publishing but in distribution and retail and that is this just this commoditization of the product this kind of idea that you can make the kind of uh, margins that you used to 20 years ago um, by reducing the quality and it's just a sort of it's a, it's a vicious circle towards zero um, I think you know for instance I mean, what Condé Nast are doing at the moment is extraordinary to see how they're kind of internationalizing their big brands which traditionally if you take something like Vogue which in different markets has meant very different things and they're trying to kind of group them into kind of uh, you know reduce the number of people involved having one editor working across four five six different um, editions and it, it might be efficient in the t in the short term but the long term is just it's it's, it's going to be a less distinctive product Mm. Jeremy, you, you'll be in Zurich uh, to, to speak at the DistroPress Congress. And uh, for those who aren't familiar with DistroPress, this is a, a gathering of the world's main news distributors and the world's biggest publishers uh, who have to get magazines across borders. And this will be happening slightly reduced format uh, than it's normally been, but it's nevertheless, it's going to be in person, etc. You're going to have a really a stage to go and speak to people who are on the retail side, people who have to get newspapers and magazines, uh, you know, across country and around the world and, and also publishers uh, as as well what would you say to them at a time when yeah we see again many retailers are, have moved into the business of of course just uh, you know wanting to sell chocolate bars uh, and neck pillows and um, other knickknacks which might be you know important for the daily experience maybe not uh, but if you know what what do you want to maybe impress upon them uh, well I'm very grateful to have this platform to try and explain the, the the context within which we work at mag culture and thank you very much for your kind words in, in your introduction but we're, we're part of a not a network but there we, there are a bunch of magazines across uh, magazine shops across the world we all know each other we're, we're not in formally kind of linked but we're, we're friends and, and connected in many ways and I'm thinking you know do you read me in Berlin under under the cover in Lisbon Athenaeum in, in Amsterdam Casa in, in New York, etc., and they, we can go on. Um, but but these shops are are increasing. You know, I have conversations with with my fellow owners, and 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 they're frustrated by the big distributors' unwillingness to deal with these outlets, uh, which is you know, which, which again is a short sightedness. And so I'm hoping to just sort of present what we are doing and try and explain what we are about right across the, the the different parts of the uh, industry from the from the publishers to the magazines to the this dis is distributors we do work with to the uh, to the shops and then the readers and just try and get get in front of of, of the big um, distributors the idea that this is a significant force that's growing Jeremy Leslie of Mag Culture, we look forward to seeing you in Zurich uh, later this afternoon. Have a have a very uh, good flight. Uh, you are listening uh, to uh, Monocle Twenty Four. This is, of course, Monocle on Sunday with me, Tyler Berlay, also Ben Otsaugas with me, and Emily Isau. Uh, Emily, maybe um, it's 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 time for um, fun fin tales, maybe. Um, so, uh, what, uh, what 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 do you have out of the Finnish uh, papers uh, for us today? So, we something uh, want something a bit more fun. Um, so, for the first time, I think in several 
months there there's kind of great supply of fun stories from Finland but um I'll, I'll go to one um, so I could have mentioned snow having reached Finland um this is always big news you know you wouldn't imagine it never happens I guess <laughs> exactly so it's a surprise every autumn <laughs> that you know snow falls um so this was big news um singing and karaoke singing is again allowed in Finnish bars so this made the okay, headlines we'll come back to that uh, but the one I, I did want to mention is um the independence reception uh, hosted by the Finnish president um 6th of December every year and and this um if you watching this ceremony at 6 p.m. every 6th of December um, to an outsider would seem to be the most boring thing to watch. Um, you have all politicians. All the, the Finns in their finery, right? In the, it's yeah. a white tie event. Yes. Um, so ambassadors to Finland, politicians and the finest in art, sports and culture um, being invited to the presidential palace and shaking hands with the presidential couple. And this lasts for several hours. And for one reason or another, this is like the most watched TV show in Finland every year. <laughs> So 2.6 million people from a population of some 5.4 million people watch this on an annual basis. So uh, last year it did not happen because of COVID for obvious reasons. Shaking of hands is not so <laughs> such a good thing. White gloves could have got them around it or something. You would have thought, right? But anyway, Precisely, exactly. so you're supposed to be a nation of innovators, but okay. Precisely. Keep, keep so there, there was a kind of an online version of it. So the presidential couple was making Zoom calls to people, etc. Um, but now the presidential um, office has mentioned that it is happening this year so Finns are really uh, excited about this however what does that uh, look like like a, an excited Finn um uh, yeah no they aren't yeah we, we, need, we, need, we need we need video for that anyway <laughs> exactly but the big thing um there will be a change so um handshaking will not be allowed and and, and the current president Sauli Inista has alluded to the fact that this might be a thing um that will continue well into the future that um, the kind of important part, the ritual of shaking hands will not be allowed in the future. Um, so major changes in Finnish politics. That's a bit of a downer. I'm not sure about that. <laughs> Any, anyway, <laughs> and just tell us about karaoke just very, very, very quickly, because we, speaking of which, we're heading to Tokyo in a moment, uh, not to talk about that topic, maybe. But uh, So but- Finland introduced and passed a law on a COVID pass, so essentially a certificate that allows you to not wear masks indoors once you've showed it. Um, so on Friday, um, this change was passed and approved by the president and Friday midnight bars and clubs could continue having their doors uh, be open if they checked um, this COVID pass from everyone. So you have these rowdy pictures of excited Finns in, in Helsinki and in other uh, Finnish newspapers this morning um, from Friday night um, and apparently it went relatively smoothly. However, there was a short period at, right at midnight when everyone was trying to log into this online service where you can download your pass. Um, so it crashed for a moment because everyone did want to continue seeing characters karaoke and partying. <laughs> just, I think we've touched on this, but I wonder, do you think our karaoke buses, or taxis back, do you think they're back in Helsinki? I hope so. I mean, they were quite Very a Very important. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, taxis uh, in general are rather nice in Finland, yeah. um, comparatively speaking, um, and, and karaoke taxis are just a whole lot more fun. Actually, I'm wondering if Emma Nelson can tack that onto the back of the horse box uh, <laughs> as well. Maybe your own uh, mobile studio. Anyways, on the topic of karaoke, uh, our Fiona Wilson, our bureau chief uh, in uh, in Tokyo, uh, is uh, standing by. Uh, good afternoon, Fiona. 
Hi, Tyler. My my throat is rather croaky, so the very idea of karaoke is <laughs> making me reach well, for the throat uh, sweet. <laughs> when you, as I said, when you, when you were doing your your uh, intro and I said you needed a lozenge, I thought maybe you know, this is just the result of a, of a very late uh, Saturday or early Sunday morning uh, out. But maybe just bring us up to date because you know, you've been on uh, this side of the world. You you uh, travelled back to to Tokyo this week, and I guess we would also have to say, goodness, you could not be going out because, of course, you're in, you're in quarantine, aren't you? I am, yes. I feel like I was in a different world last week because I came back, flew out of London, where it slightly feels like COVID is a thing of the past. And um, I found myself back in Tokyo. I wasn't even allowed to take public transport. COVID test at the airport, brought home in a, a taxi, a private taxi I'd had to arrange before I left. And I'm in quarantine for two weeks. I'm not allowed to go out. And um, yeah, very assiduous uh, COVID police. Um, I'm, I'm, they've been in touch with me three times a day. So if I'm even thinking about <laughs> sneaking out, it's not happening. Uh, and uh, they have a, a GPS tracker on my phone. So yes, I'm being very good and seeing the world from my balcony at the moment. Uh, but I thought there was something, at least I recall during the Olympic Games when they had this, you know, of course, if people are sort of traveling in <laughs> bubbles, the Kambini, you were still allowed to go to the convenience store. <laughs> that seemed to be a place uh, that was not off limits. Is it off limits? No no Lawson for you either? Or, or can you go to well, a Seven <laughs> Eleven? Do you know what? I, I actually could and I have one very close. But I seem to every time I, I, I turn around, I, I miss the call from the, 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 the COVID hunters. And, um, you know, and then they call back and it sort of you feel slightly guilty as if you've been doing something wrong. So yes, I may be venturing out to the uh, the convenience store, um, but that's about it at the moment. And it's funny, I'm, I got back on Tuesday, so I still have quite a few days to go. And um, it, it's not been bad. I, I, you know, I talked, talked, talked endlessly in London, went out, really enjoyed myself. And as a result, um, you can hear the raspy voice. So um, I feel like um, I lived life to the full while I was uh, in Zurich as well and in London and uh, loved it. But now I'm now I'm back in uh, in quarantine. And just tell us uh, real personal reflections, because on one side, and we were corresponding about this uh, over the week, because you, you returned to Japan where measures are very heavy handed. Of course, you see economies that are, are very open. And I think you probably saw just how, you know, quite easy um, the whole story of mobility is within a within a European context, uh, even if you bolt, you know, Britain onto that um, as as well. And now you're back in Japan. But then on the other side, too, it's like you also have the UK 40,000 plus cases you know, over the past few days. I mean, the numbers are very, very high. Maybe that's also why the COVID hunters are after you. They know where you came from. <laughs> I, d I did slightly wonder if, you know, the UK was immediately raising uh, red flags. But no, I mean, you're absolutely right. It's really been interesting. I mean, going in to Switzerland and then, you know, where, you, you know, you have your QR code and you have to show that. Then going through Heathrow where nobody asked me anything and I just sailed through the e-gates and then coming back here where a very, very strict process uh, for returning residents um, and my taxi driver had confidently predicted it would take two and a half to three hours, which was a fairly awful prospect after, after a 12-hour flight. In fact, I, I, I got through a bit quicker than that. But I mean, it really does show the, the difference in approach. And if you look at the numbers in Tokyo now, it's extraordinary. I saw yesterday, I think it was 60 something cases, 55, 57 the day before. So this is cases, not not deaths, cases in Tokyo. And you know how big Tokyo is. So I think when I see the cases in London, the numbers, I'm not that surprised because it is incredibly open. And, um, and you know, this business of wearing a mask, I think people here, in spite of these low numbers, people are still very much wearing masks. And uh, in London, it's a, it's a mixed bag, I would say. <laughs> some mm. people are, some people aren't. 
Fiona, just we've seen also over the past few days a number of different announcements, various dates across Asia, though. So we have corridors now uh, with with Singapore. We have uh, Thailand. You know, there's headlines in the papers here in Switzerland uh, that they want to have the biggest New Year's party. And of course, Thailand, of course, looking to to open up um, as as well. Some murmurings out of out of Korea. Do you think this is all going to be a bit of a domino effect um, that, you know, once you know we see one big economy going for it, maybe not all eyes are on 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 Thailand because you know that's going to be a tourism play. But when you think about also other significant players, uh, w- will it move quickly? I mean, whereas other people are saying, you know, you can just write off Hong Kong; it's going to you know that's going to be kicked into to twenty twenty two at some point. But uh, what's what's your read? Well, it's interesting because every change there has been. I mean, and and one of the big changes is that returning residents don't have to go and sit in quarantine in a hotel for a few days, which was the case until a couple of weeks ago. So I I escaped that. But I think in terms of bigger changes to the, the you know, and currently, as you know, the borders are closed effectively to tourists and, and, and business travel. I think when that happens, it will happen fairly quickly. It's happened throughout that suddenly these changes are announced. Um, but I think at the moment, you know, you've got an election coming up on 31st of October. So I don't think anything is going to happen before then. I'd be surprised. Um, so I think once that election is over, then we move into the the next phase. And obviously, you know, the economy is is going to struggle if they keep the borders closed. So I think all eyes are on that as well. Um, I don't I don't honestly see a big at the moment. People are quite cautious, and I think you know it's become a bit of a, a sense of security keeping the borders closed. And I think you know people will initially struggle whenever they announce that the borders are opening. But I think once this election's out of the way, um, maybe we'll see you know signs that at least a business corridor or two might open up. Mm. And just to finally, before we go, is in the same way that we don't see the COVID numbers popping up on on UK news, how's the Japanese media dealing with the state of tourism? Because, okay, yes, on one side, you know, we're going to see probably another round of of, of activating domestic tourism uh, in Japan. And we've been, we've been covering that topic. But, you know, that can only do so much when there have been these incredible fat years of, of course, Chinese tourists and uh, and also people coming in, you know, well, certainly from all over the world. We saw this boom. So if I'm running a ryokan uh, yeah, down uh, in somewhere on Kyushu and, and I was really relying on those people, uh, of course, you know, traveling from all over the world, is, is, is the Japanese media brushing that under the rug a little bit? Uh, or or where, where, where would you say that that story sits at the moment? No, I mean, that's really, you know, tourism is obviously really important and, and has become even more important. I mean, I think part of the problem was that last Christmas, the, the go-to travel campaign, this campaign to promote domestic tourism, really was a precursor to a big surge in cases. So mm. I think that's quite difficult. But no, I mean, they're already talking about um, starting up the voucher system, discounts on trains. They're definitely going to try and reactivate domestic tourism, which could, you know, be a forerunner to international tourism. But I mean, there's no question it's a huge struggle for these regional economies to be without um you know, even domestic tourism. But I think that is something they will definitely be tackling as soon as possible. Um, you know, and that has been flagged in the media. So, yeah, everyone knows that. I mean, as to when we're going to see these big sort of um, numbers again, it's not clear. But, you know, you look at the the tourism industry, they're still banking on these incredible sort of 60 million a year kind of numbers they've been talking about. They're sticking with these numbers. So they obviously think that when they do open up, um, the world will be, you know, eager to come back to Japan. So there's, a, you know, in spite of the sort of economic bad news, I feel there's a bit of optimism about what will happen once things uh, open up again. 
Very good. Fiona Wilson, our Bureau Chief in Tokyo. Thank you very much for that. We're hoping maybe even this happens uh, before uh, Christmas. It's uh, just uh, 10.53 uh, here in Zurich at 9.53 if you're listening in London and Porto. Uh, just uh, I have, of course, my uh, my colleagues here, uh, Emily and uh, also Benno. And maybe uh, I think Emma is going to, to jump back in as well because I'm sure she's been scrambling away trying to see if she can also find a karaoke box to tack on behind that horse. But um, Emma, we'll, we'll, we'll come to you in, in, in a moment. Emily, was there anything else that we, uh, we we left out of uh, out of the out of the finished papers or anything else before we go that you saw anywhere else in the world maybe just briefly to continue on, on, on the noble story I think I was here um, talking about a couple of weeks ago um, before they were announced and and now of course there's been a lot of discussion as there tends to be every year after the prizes have been announced in the Nordic countries about the lack of diversity both in terms of gender but also ethnicity and other um, markers um, among the recipients of these awards so um, just to give you a sense so for instance out of the 975 uh, uh, prizes that have been awarded since 1901, only 59 have been awarded to women. Um, so gender um, seems to be um, a sticking point. And, and, and this year, Maria Ressa of the Philippines was the only woman to have received an award. And then she shared that um, with Dmitry Muratov of um, Russia. So discussion having been taking place in Sweden in particular about lack of diversity. So Jöran Hansen, so the head of the Royal Swedish Academy of Sciences, has come out to say that they would not institute any quotas, uh, be it on gender or ethnicity or any other markers. Um, in the future, they want to live um, or do justice to the testament of Alfred Nobel and, and really award the prizes to people who made the most important discoveries um, uh, over the past 365 days. However, they acknowledge the lack of diversity and, and have said that they will continue inviting more women to appoint candidates uh, for the award. They will try to add more women to their committees, selection committees. Um, so they're very conscious of um, this battle. And of course, it's a more of a holistic problem. And this is why I was reading the ETH Equality Plan um, this morning, just to get the statistics. Just to get your Sunday morning rolling for exactly. fun, right? It was a fun <laughs> like, wow. as I was sipping on my <laughs> coffee. No, but really just to make the point so under friends is the current rector of eth um we've tried to really make uh, great strides in uh, diversifying the student body but also the faculty um uh, body at eth and and it's still a slow process so just engineering you... and architecture is we know it's a, it's it's a tricky, tricky one and, and, I mean... and among the professors i think in uh, europe and north uh, america it's less than 10 percent that are women in, in stem so in, in engineering mm -hmm. um, um natural sciences but say for instance at eth doctoral candidates back in um, 2006 it was around 28% were women so still already relatively okay and it's gone up to 33.5% um, two years ago um, so again it's going up but it's a slow process and again that's reflected you know way further down the line in Nobel prices as well. Mm. And I can say you're going to try to shine a light on your department because you had some of your colleagues here the other day and, and it wasn't a man in sight. That's true. Actually, we've uh, very proudly can say we've managed to maintain a diverse student body, but it was a bit of a selection bias. Okay, I brought the right. monocle fans. Uh, okay, well, that's good. <laughs> um, Benno, anything just uh, from, uh, you got one paid paper open there, but I'm not sure if that was one that you wanted to talk about, or that's an earlier reference point. Um, no, but brace yourselves for quite a bridge here. Okay. Diversity at university. Oh, wait, we're, we're on our way to Kabul. That's oh, right. Yes, That's we okay. are, believe it or not. <laughs> but you have to do Kabul in 90 seconds or less. I H can do that. It. If diversity at ETH is an issue, imagine Kabul University. Currently, campuses are deserted before the Taliban takeover. There were 43% women, 43 of women enrolled, which was quite, quite positive. And now we're 
and zero students overall. Taliban envoys are sent to the university. And it's, the Die Zeit had a really good feature that speaks to quality of journalism overall that we've seen with a few features from Afghanistan. And I'll end just with a tiny anecdote. Um, the, they interviewed the head of the geology department at, at Kabul University. And he said that he's been negotiating with the Ministry of Education, the new one, on how to continue teaching overall. And he said, well, some of these um, officials there may be illiterate these days. Um, and they asked him, what's an experiment? And he said, he, he's struggling. And they said, please explain it to us. So he says in the interview that he's spending day and night thinking about how can you explain the concept of an experiment to possibly illiterate new officials in the Ministry of Education. So if diversity issues in Europe are an issue, Afghanistan is obviously way worse. Or, or a great big mirror that would maybe solve the problems. Emma Nelson back in uh, in, in London. Uh, yes. Just uh, how's the how's the hunt going? Maybe actually there's a documentary, sort of London all the way to Kabul, with your <laughs> with your new sort of modern sort of travelling caravan. I'm way beyond that. I found a fair ton. Transporter, um, a better transporter, mit, super mit karaoke. Um, so I think we've completely changed the Zurich uh, Christmas Fair. It has a cocktail bar and a stage, and I don't know where you put the horse, but I think we'll work that one out when we get to it. So I think Christmas is sorted from the point of view of Monocle's uh, entertainment. Oh, and the thing about the, the... I think you were talking about something involved with small children, cranes and beer boxes. Is that right? Yeah, that's also going to happen as well. OK, let's do we'll, that. We'll, we'll, we'll exchange pictures. <laughs> Emma Nelson on Embedded and Emily Isawa here. In uh, Zurich, also our Fiona Wilson in London, Tom, Tom Edwards in London, also Jeremy Leslie en route to Zurich as we speak. Our producers today, Emma Nelson and Marcus Hippie, and also managing the sound, Desiree Bendley and Nora Hall back in London. I'm Tyler Brulé. Have a very good week. Monocles on Sunday is back next Sunday. Bye-bye.